generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus-y podcast about race and faith from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and a white guy too. My name is Andrew. I'm Asian. I use he, him pronouns. And my name's Bethany. I am black, and I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Chris. I'm white, and I use he, him pronouns. So we'd like to start off our podcast by talking about things that we wish we had mentioned or things we want to correct from previous episodes. Um, I think we... We both have things we want to kind of correct from the episode that we did as a crossover episode with Down the Wormhole podcast. Um, speaking of which, if you guys notice on the feed, I didn't number it because I wasn't sure whether it included as an actual like numbered episode. <laughs> I think it makes sense not to number it, right? Yeah, it's like a it's like a special it's like a special issue. You, anyway. Yeah, it's an Easter egg edition, right? Uh, so in that episode, I kept saying 19125 instead of 19145 as the zip code with high rates of asthma in Philly. Yeah. And in our crossover episode, I think I said something to the effect of like, I just assume that my soil is poison, um, which makes a lot of sense in Philly. But a friend of mine told me that I shouldn't just assume. So I looked up how you can, uh, test your soil and you can pay $9, um, and send like a cup of your soil to the county extension office. So if you just Google Penn State extension office, um, you can get all the details there to test your soil. And probably if you're in Philly, confirm that it's poison. <laughs> right. Nine dollars um, to be told what you already knew. Right. <laughs> I, I assume that my soil is poison. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Also, because like historically where my neighborhood is, there was like a ton of manufacturing here in most of the yeah. 20th century. So like that's where the that's where the poison comes from. Yeah, and our houses yeah. are old, like yeah. lead paint everywhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, we like to um, read what people are saying to us at, at our circle mobilizing at gmail dot com uh, email address. This letter comes from a listener. He says, "Hey everyone, I want to say that this episode I think is well timed, as I think there are a lot of issues we're dealing with." as a society in terms of how oppression can affect our daily lives. Um, that state, that sentence could apply to any one of our episodes, but I think the listener was specifically talking about our, um, internalized white supremacy episode. Mm. Um, I was particularly struck by the end of the episode when Andrew went through the passage of Deuteronomy when the command was put out to remember when we were slaves in Egypt. I honestly think this is something that people of color, particularly black people, can't forget. In my experience, as a black man who is both gay and a Christian slash Jesus follower, I wonder why there has been, and still is, such a tension between the black church and the LGBTQ plus community. Sometimes it makes it difficult to stay a Christian due to some of the particular microaggressions I experienced through negative commentary made about LGBTQ plus folks from the pulpit, as well as from other church members. I'm still working to trust in my own faith journey and in God enough to be a Jesus follower. I'm hoping that you can tackle the particular nuances of the relationship between the black church and the LGBTQ plus community and black LGBTQ plus Christians in a future episode. Be blessed, y'all, and keep doing this thing. It's definitely a needed space and community in a time such as this. Uh, and the listener adds, P.S. Bethany, I'm with you on the hesitation to identify as a Christian anymore. To me, it's becoming less about the label 
and more about how we are living out our faith. So just maybe you and I don't need to be attached to the label and just continue to follow Jesus. I hmm. know that helps. Um, so thanks so much for that. There's great, a lot of great information, and people have been coming in to, to, to ask about this, the intersection between LGBTQIA plus stuff and uh, the POC community, particularly the black community. It's something that would be great to, to explore, I think, and we're, mm-hmm. we're going to do that. So the listener hits on something that we've kind of been coming back to again and again, which is this question of, is it worth it to hold on to this Christian label? And in a broader sense, what's worth holding on to and what's worth letting go? Um, and the three of us are recording this a day before we're supposed to talk to Jamar Tisby, New York, yeah. <laughs> New York Times bestselling <laughs> author Jamar Tisby author of Color of Compromise, uh, we're all particular <laughs> fans of him. And I think we're all just trying to kind of like play it cool. Like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, we're yeah. emailing Jamar Tisby to get yeah, him no on our deal. podcast. No mm-hmm. um, but I think we're all like secretly freaking out. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad to have so this cool. geek out moment today and not when we're yeah. actually talking to him. I mean, we could, let's talk about what we're hoping for this conversation. But at least what I'm hoping is that he can help us sort out what kind of what the listener was was suggesting, which is like, what is this like in this in this faith that we share that is so that is infected by so much white supremacy that it, that has had a hand in so much racism what's worth keeping and what's not mm-hmm. and that's something that we don't have easy answers to and we know that because we talk about it every single episode uh, so I wonder my I'm wondering what insight Jamar can offer to us about that that's what I want to know what do you what yeah. do you guys want to get out of this conversation? I have been feeling particularly exasperated by white people. Um, And I'm at this point, I'm at this point in so many places in my life, but I'm feeling kind of hopeless. Like maybe white people and black people shouldn't be in church together. And Mm. maybe, you know, American socialization is too vastly different for us, for us to actually be able to really be in community with one another. Um, So I want to know what his thoughts are on brothers and sisters in Christ that are black and white. Um, yeah. Figuring that out. And if mm-hmm. it's possible, I'm sure I'm pretty sure he's, he'll say it is. <laughs> We're going to find out together. <laughs> Wouldn't it what? be hilarious if he was like, yeah, no, I'm just, with you. Just it's over. It down. <laughs> be like, Let's start a new church tomorrow. Yeah. 11 a.m. Like, on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. And let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel most of the time. <laughs> how, about, how about you chris what are you hoping to get out of this um so i i, I think a lot about the the white people who are listening to this this uh podcast and i think jamar tisby has this like evangelical sort of a background that might bridge some of the some of the gaps um i don't know i'm, I'm thinking about white evangelicals and how jamar tisby might actually resonate with them i think um it's funny, I listen to his podcast sometimes, and his language is like, it, he has a different way of talking than we do on our podcast. And that mm. might just appeal to some people. That Wait, normally, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, like what, he's nicer? Yeah. What are you trying to say, yeah, Chris? Um, let's see, the, the latest episode of Footnotes, at one point, he, he uses the, the uh, phrase, raise heck. There's no way we would say raise heck on this podcast. Oh, man. We're going to have to be on our best behavior. <laughs> I wonder if we can't cuss. <laughs> Well, we'll have to ask him. Mm. Will we though? Let's just be let's just be polite. <laughs> let's be polite to our guest and his sensibilities. 
Yeah. Um, because it's super... I mean, this is... So, I, through the magic of editing, everybody who's listening to this is just going to be, go right into our conversation with Jamar Tisby. But the three of us will be falling asleep to dreams of sugar plums and Jamar Tisby tonight. Yo. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. Sugar plums and Jamar Tisby. Maybe uh-huh. that's the episode title. <laughs> Jamar Tisby Eve. <laughs> Jamar, Jamar Tisby Eve. Do we lay out cookies or something? <laughs> mm. And uh, I, th- I think we lay out um, pickles and Kool-Aid, if his website isn't anything to go by. Is that what he likes? Pic- oh, pickled uh, Kool-Aid pickles, right? Yes, Kool-Aid pickles. I was just poking around and it was about me. Again, as research in, in excited preparation for this. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing. Like, I think this is the most research. I'm, like, why am I saying I think this is definitely the most research I've done for a guest on this podcast? I just don't want to look dumb. Yeah. Who else are we going to do research on, yeah. Johnny? No, for real. That's true. All so. right. So this is exciting, and this should be fun. Um, and uh, I'm just looking forward to, you know, seeing what yeah. he has to say, just as a somebody too. who else is in this work. So, All right, cool. So um, here's the conversation. I hope it's good. Man, I really do hope it's good. I, I, it'll yeah. be great. All right. It is great. You're yes, welcome. It, here we go. And then they'll do the thing. <laughs> um, great. So now we're recording. This is, I, I think we're all kind of trying to be cool around Jamar Tisby right now. <laughs> but, uh, like Jamar is like, Jamar shows up and he's like, I'm late because I was talking to Reverend John Perkins. <laughs> Uh, and with this is just a podcast where we're just used to chit-chatting with each other about whatever weird stuff is going on in our lives and, and the activist stuff and church stuff. And now we've got Jamar freaking Tisby on our podcast. It's really J- Jamar. This is significant for us because your book, The Color of Compromise, um, kicked off a lot of the conversations that we ha- are having this year. Hmm. I think the thing that we're always trying to do as a team. Uh, is help white people recognize and confess their own complicity. I guess help all of us, I mean, even as persons of color, recognize mm-hmm. our own complicity. But it's always difficult, I guess, to, for anybody to, to acknowledge their own sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and your book, The Color of Compromise, was just exactly what we were looking for. Because it, it, it really turns the conversation directly on, you know, what is our role as the church? Not just concentrating on the heroes, because that's what we always do. We look at the people that were outstanding. But looking at what most, you know, what, what the actual history is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, that was, that was an amazing conversation. And it's still, you know, it's still happening right now in our church. I would um, say it was even a kind of turning point in the work that we were doing hmm. um, in our church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The way we were thinking about kicking off this conversation is why, wh- what went into th- writing that book? Why, what, 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 uh, what were you trying to add to the conversation by writing The Color of Compromise? So whenever you do like a master's thesis or, or, or a dissertation, you're, you, you do a survey of literature, right? You look at what is already out there in a similar field and where the gaps might be or where you can enhance or amplify. So as I was looking at it, both from an academic historical lens and from a Christian sort of popular writing lens, what I found was a couple of things. One, uh, 
there are religious studies scholars and historians of religion but if you try to sort of put all the pieces together and trace the line trace this sort of pattern of complicity there's not that many resources out there uh that that put it all together you can find a lot of information in lots of different books but who has the time right and then on on the other side when you have christians talking about race i i noticed there were a couple of genres one was sort of a memoir style you know people telling their personal journey another one was sort of how-to and practical, but more focused on how do we have a multi-ethnic church? How do we have a multiracial church? That very kind mm -hmm. of specific out outcome. Um, and then there were others like sociological or psychological examinations. But there wasn't one that I saw that really used history as a vehicle to talk about the church and race. It, mm -hmm. was, it was present, mm -hmm. you know, in, in everyone, but never like the main driver. So that was one space where I saw an opportunity for a book like The Color of Compromise. And the way I came to history was looking at Ferguson and Black Lives Matter a lot. There are a couple of things, actually. One, I live in the Delta. I live in one of the poorest counties in the United States. Um, I try never to draw too sharp a line between the racism in one region and, and racism in another because it's everywhere right racism mm -hmm. is not regional uh, bigotry oh, knows no boundaries mm -hmm. but at the same time i would say the geography here is different so like the town where i live in is a civil war battle site um james meredith who was the first person black person to integrate the university of mississippi was in my sunday school class in jackson listening to me talk about the bible which is <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> flip that table um uh, -huh. uh you know i can walk around uh the sites where um you know neshoba county where civil rights three civil rights activists were killed um and buried in a dam i can go to ruleville where fannie lou hamer was from so so i say all that because history is in the air down here and so that mm -hmm. sort of started me thinking about it but then it really catalyzed during the black lives matter movement because i like the rest of the country i'm trying to sort of make sense of what's going on and i found oftentimes historians had the most helpful things to say so they were able to talk about redlining and restrictive covenants and racial steering they were able to connect the police force to slave patrols and you know controlling black bodies mm -hmm. and so there was um at that point sort of a hunger in me to want to explore these issues of race and justice from a historical perspective yeah i think all all of us kind of have that in common in that we are people of faith that came face to face with the racial reality in this country i mean beth uh is originally from north philly and uh i mean i came to philly in college uh, it, from my perspective, like I grew up in the suburbs. When I came to Philadelphia for college, I ran headfirst into the fact that we live in a segregated country. And mm -hmm. because what I recognize is that the faith didn't give me any tools to understand racial injustice when I was growing up. The church did not equip me whatsoever to think about racism. Beth, do you, do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny, you said I'm from North Philly originally, but I was also homeschooled when I lived in North Philly. <laughs> and then <laughs> I moved to a farm town turning into a suburb um, in Delaware at 11, right? So the churches that I went to 
were very predominantly white um, and really avoided talking about race. And especially in the early 2000s, nobody was talking about anti-racism. So I'm, I'm thinking of your book and how it would land with my church youth group or my church youth group <laughs> leaders, right, in middle school. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what has been your experience with um, churches that you visit or even people, I'm sure people are just bold enough to write into you, right? So what what has been your reception from the Christian church with this book? So w- this is a little bonus because I, I like y'all and I, I appreciate your audience, <laughs> but uh, a little historical principle that I learned from my professors is that contrary to the popular saying, history does not repeat itself. Hmm. Um, history rhymes. And there are echoes, Hmm. and sometimes the past is prologue, but history does not repeat itself in the sense of replication. And that's Mm -hmm. because circumstances are too specific, too particular to particular times and places and people, choices and contexts that were present, you know, even five years ago or 20 years ago are different now. So... um, I wonder how this book would have landed in 2000 or 2001, right? right? Mm. It would have been very different. Mm-hmm. But here we are. It came out January 2019. It had sort of a renaissance in the summer of 2020 in the wake of the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uprisings. Mm-hmm. Um, I say all that to say context is very important. And so in the past at least five or six years, again, uh primarily since the Black Lives Matter movement, but of course before that, Trayvon Martin and these rumblings are there. That's just the past 10 years, right? So right. so there's an openness, I think, in, in the last 10 years to discussing these things. And when I say openness, I'm talking, you know, primarily about non-black people, right? Because black people, mm-hmm. we live this every day. We've been talking about it. Uh, when we talk about things becoming part of the national conversation, that really just means white people are paying attention <laughs> at this point. Um, so so white people started to sit up and pay attention, and white Christians started to sit up and pay attention around 2014, 2015 for sure. And then um, it, it even accelerated, I think, in the past five years, there's been incredible. So, so for instance, five years ago, we would have been looking sort of sideways at prominent white Christian leaders at, you know, the next human being who became a hashtag. And we'd be waiting. Are you going to say something? Are you going to chime mm-hmm. in here? Are you going to speak up, speak out? In 2020, when this stuff was happening, there, I didn't sense as much of that. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's more that could be done, but it's... Folks had learned enough (laughs) to say, okay, this is bad. This is a problem. I'm going to use my platform some way, somehow, even in the most minimal sense. I'm not saying it's enough, but that's a difference, right? So how did the book land? Response-wise, overwhelmingly positive. From white people, it's a whole lot of I never knew. Um, Mm. It's devastating. Mm -hmm. It really disrupts their foundations of faith. Mm-hmm. in terms of the culture of faith that they grew up in. So they start saying, well, maybe maybe this culture wars approach to Christianity was not, you know, God's ordained way. And maybe there's more to it than that. So it's a lot of awakenings there. For black folks, it's a lot of thank you for putting into words what I've felt mm-hmm. for a long time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, all of us know that there's some sense of othering 
going on when we're black Christians in white spaces. Uh, and mm-hmm. we know there's a problem with racism and white supremacy, but now we can put names and dates and places to it and specificity to it that we weren't able to. So I, I see a lot of gratitude there. Uh, but I'll end with this. Mm-hmm. The trolls are out in force and getting stronger. Mm-hmm. I got to say this. I got to say this to your folks. Be ready for white lash. It's already happening. We're seeing it with armed vigilantes and militias, which are being empowered through the rhetoric coming from the White House. We're Mm -hmm. seeing it from orders. Uh, There's this whole critical race theory order about, you know, purging, quote unquote, the federal government of these pernicious influences. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. That is emboldening people. And I've seen it even in the past week or so since the latest order came out that people are just. They're not even attempting to hide it. There are people with literal blog posts out there defending slavery in 2020. And they, it echoes chillingly the same theological twists and turns that you would hear in the antebellum era. So I'm just saying, yeah, it's been received positively by many who are ready to change, but the opposition grows strong proportionally yeah and to that point i i just like kind of to like position us on the on the timeline like we're we're talking a week after the shooting in kenosha we're also talking um at a time when the evangelical church has raised a lot of money for the defense of kyle rittenhouse yes well let's talk about that actually jamar because that's really what we wanted to talk about the most discouraging thing about doing this work the most discouraging place that that the that the opposition comes from is uh from our so-called brothers and sisters in christ from 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 the church i'm I'm curious about um uh how, how do you respond to the fact that people will say um that the work of racial justice is secondary or peripheral to the work of the gospel you know, because there are always people that that look at the work, the, that justice work, and see it as a distraction to to the real work of of saving souls for Jesus Christ. Um, and and uh, I mean, how do you respond to that attitude? I'd say they need to listen to the voices of other Christians, particularly those who are on the margins of power in society or have been oppressed, or what uh, Howard Thurman would call the disinherited people with their backs against the wall, because when you live in sort of existential danger, um, as black people have in this country for a long time, and how we still feel, especially in terms of anti-black police brutality, uh, there is no separation (laughs) between, you know, the spiritual and the material, right? It's not good news to me, unless it has something to do with the oppressive conditions that I'm in, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I know the Bible doesn't create this bifurcation. What happened was, in U.S. history in particular, uh, people with power, in this case white people, created this separation. And so in Mm -hmm. The Color of Compromise, I talk about um, the baptismal vows that Francis Lejao, a missionary, uh, gave to Native Americans and and enslaved Africans. And he basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, you desire baptism purely for the sake of your eternal soul and not out of any desire for freedom or emancipation. Essentially saying, you know, God can have your soul, that's fine, but we still own your body, 
right? Mm -hmm. And separating these things. And then you can also see it in uh, the Presbyterian Church calls it the spirituality of the church, a doctrine. Uh, but every sort of major Christian tradition has this principle. And the, and, and the spirituality of the church set sounds really good on paper. It says the church's role is ministerial and declarative, meaning the church is the only spiritual entity commissioned by Christ to minister to the spiritual needs of Christ's followers, and it is declarative in the sense that it that the church is supposed to say to society, thus saith the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, be, being a state church or something, which is often the case uh, in imperial and colonial endeavors, especially with the Catholic Church. The problem is this. Spirituality of the church and this sort of separation of church and state and, and the idea that you need to, the, that politics can't touch religion and all that stuff, that only came into play when race was the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. Things like the spirituality of the church weren't relevant when, you know, they were fighting uh, for prohibition, weren't relevant when they mm -hmm. wanted to keep the Bible or prayer in schools, certainly not relevant uh, contemporarily when it comes to the issue of abortion, Right. Right. All of a right. sudden, though, you're being too political when you start talking about racial justice. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's very selective in that sense. For sure. That, and that's something we've run into multiple times. People always want to talk about how there's – how people always want to bring up the third way of Jesus whenever they start feeling uncomfortable about race, <laughs> in, in, at least in our context. Um, Jamar, what you, you mentioned that the White House just released the, the, that order about critical race theory. I don't know if this is connected at all, but recently a bunch of prominent people, you know, Tim Keller, for instance, uh, wrote a blog post about how critical race theory is anti-gospel. Um, do you can still consider yourself reformed, Jamar? I definitely don't wear that label. I find myself uh -huh. um, going to the Westminster Confessions explication of the Ten Commandments pretty frequently. I think what happened is almost like the framers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, when they talk about like uh, all people being created equal, endowed by their creator with uh, um, life, liberty, pursuit of heaven, all this stuff, right? That actually is good. They just didn't yeah. know how good it was. <laughs> mm -hmm. They meant it only to apply in that case to, you know, landowning white men. Uh, basically. And so I, th I think it's similar with some of the theology and doctrine coming from Europeans that, you know, sometimes they mistake and, and happen upon a more profound truth than they ever intended. And mm. so I can um, appreciate uh, some teachings coming from white folks and Europeans in that sense, even knowing that they may have never intended it to apply to sort of racial justice matters, but guess what? You 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 messed up because you're by your own words, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, right. it it is it is saying that we need to work for these things. So in that sense, you know, that's sort of the interaction these days I have with reformed circles. Yeah, hmm. I guess I want. I'm I'm curious about that in a bigger context because what you're saying is that you look at these older traditions and you still find things that are worthwhile that speak to your experience and also the fight for God's justice. I guess Beth, maybe you can speak for yourself about this, but this is something that we come into a lot, which is what's worth keeping versus what is so corrupt, what is so messed up that we just mm -hmm. have to let it go. I mean, 
help in me out here, In regards to Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were just saying a few weeks ago, Beth, um, that you think, for, for that you've been thinking about whether it might be time to let go of the label of Christianity because it has so been been so, you know, it 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 doesn't it's not useful for who you associate with. Or what were you saying, Bethany? Yeah. So I don't remember when this was, but it's maybe a couple of months ago, maybe a couple of years ago. We're in the middle of a pandemic. My framework <laughs> for time is completely off. Uh-huh. Um, but a friend said to me. Um, well, you're one of the hardest core Christians I know. And I felt like shame, right? Like I felt a rush through me um, because as a black, as both a black person and a woman and the combination of being a black woman, which comes with a lot of things, I know what cr- the harm that Christians have caused, right? Um, and how much Christianity in America Um, And maybe this is just where I'm at right now. But for me, I have experienced Christianity in America being inseparable from white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to say to me, you're a hardcore Christian, feels synonymous with calling me a bigot. Um, Mm -hmm. And they totally weren't calling me that, right? Like they were just saying, I read the Bible a lot. But for me, that's, and it was a white person. So for me, that's how it struck. And I've just been wrestling with um, the fact that I just think Christianity cannot be separated from white supremacy at this point. And that Christianity has been so used for so long to execute violence that not only is it separated from white supremacy, it is inseparable from violence at this point. So yeah, I've been using the word Jesus follower to describe myself. Um, And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on Christianity and white supremacy, and what do, is it worth saving, I think is my question, right? Do we try to save Christianity from white supremacy? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. I think we've all sort of wrestled with these associations and the connotations mm-hmm. um, that words take on because of racism and white supremacy. For me, the the, the wrestling has more been with the term uh, evangelical as opposed mm. to the term Christian, right? So I describe myself as a black Christian who is evangelical adjacent. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh-huh. I'm evangelical adjacent because I really learned the faith within the context of white evangelical churches. That's I mean, I was invited to a white evangelical youth group. That's how I first came to um, faith in Jesus Christ. And so Mm. I can't actually separate my own testimony from that. At the same time, because of racism and white supremacy and ethnocentrism, as a black person, I was in but not of those circles. And that wasn't my deciding. That's what they decided, right? Mm. So, um, and even to the present day where I've made sort of intentional steps to what we call build our own tables so we start the witness right so we don't have to be reliant on predominantly white outlets to express our thoughts and perspectives even as i've taken intentional steps to distance myself from white evangelicalism i remain conversant enough with that culture to call myself evangelical adjacent now um framework wise my my good friend and 
modern-day prophet Akemeni Uwan, she says uh, she uses labels that are going to um, survive in eternity, that are going to be here mm -hmm. in the eschaton, right? So I think she would probably say Christian is one of those. Uh, she would say um, not evangelical, but evan evangel, the good news, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a Bible word. Even reconciliation, which is a word that has been absolutely voided of its power and its yeah. transformation. Yeah, word, word too. Yeah. Right. But there is a biblical, you know, use of the word, right? So um, I think that's a pretty good framework. Like what 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 words aren't just Bible words, but words that, that we could probably use helpfully even in heaven, you know, when heaven comes to earth. The last thing I'll say is um, I am not ready to give so much power to white people, white supremacy, and racism that I lose my faith and mm -hmm. my grounding in the faith, which is not what I'm saying that you're, you're talking about. But what I'm saying is, um, yeah, white people have done great violence to Christianity in terms of its reputation and in the name of Christianity in terms of imperialism, colonialism, you know, this entire project, right? At the same time, there are many, many others, literally the majority world, <laughs> who have interpreted Christianity very differently. Um, so obviously we can look from a global perspective and say, well, what are Christians in Guatemala believing, right? Um, mm -hmm. What are Christians in South and North Korea believing and China? What are Christians in Kenya and Nigerians, Nigeria believing? Um, but even in the U.S., right, like I mentioned before, when it comes to Christianity, I hear the voice of Fannie Lou Hamer in the back of my head, who had everything going against her earthly speaking. She was poor. She was black. She was a woman. She was born into a sharecropping family, grew up to be a sharecropper, and then at the age of the tender age of 44, becomes a civil rights activist, right? Um, and what's so fascinating about Fannie Lou Hamer is that everything she did, she connected to her Christian faith. And mm -hmm. so as I look at the ancestors, my black ancestors, and the ways they understood, they saw through the hypocrisy, just like Frederick Douglass did when he said, I de despise the you know, slaveholder Christianity, basically. Uh, but he said, there's a pure and peaceable, loving form of Christianity that I love. Uh, that's, that's my take on it. That's my perspective. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. I like that idea because I'm, what you're talking about is the idea, I mean, on one level, you are building our own tables, as you said. You're also talking about preserving the things that are worth preserving. Um, I guess what you're saying about remaining conversant with, for instance, white evangelical culture, I'm conversant in white evangelical culture just because, like you, I, I also grew up a, a very w along with white evangelicals, so I, calling myself evangelical adjacent, I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> so, thanks, Jamar. I don't know how um, helpful it is, but that's what I landed I mean, on. That is, that, that it's, do you find that, um, Here's my impulse. On one level, I can't help but be conversant with white evangelical culture. On the other hand, I just want to throw it all out and not interact, not check Twitter, not follow, not not read Christianity Today, not not pay any attention to what they're doing so I can go off and do something that is helpful as opposed to spending my mental energy paying attention to people that don't speak for me. I guess, how do you manage that? That struggle, I guess. 
That's it. That's a critical question right there. It's one, honestly, we're still working out. We're working out in real time uh, as we go about this thing. I would say the biggest difference is um, while I remain conversant with white evangelicalism, that is not my faith community anymore, and it is not mm. a, 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 a community or a group of people uh, from whom I seek approval, uh, validation, or attention. Uh, which is very different than than you know even earlier in the 2010s for me. So um, the way I liken it is, you know, a lot of us are leaving Egypt. <laughs> uh, a lot of us are being set free and crossing that Red Sea many times spurred by this new sort of racial awareness that we have because of what's going on in the world and realizing, oh man, what I grew up with, what I came from, what my church community has been is actually not on the side of the oppressed, not working toward justice. And I don't want to be part of that anymore. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm out, right? But, but mm -hmm. then what comes next? Well, for the people of Israel, it was a wilderness wandering. And so, um, I feel like that's where a lot of us are. So we've we've mm. left Egypt, or you could say we've left the plantation, right? But we're not yet to the promised land either. We haven't yet found this, you know, sort of home or landing place. In fact, we're trying to sort of build it as we go. But in the meantime, what sustains us is the nearness of God and the community that God brings around us on the way. So we may be camping in tents, we may be eating manna instead of meat, but guess what? We've got God and we've got each other. And and that's how I feel in terms of, you know, my relationship to evangelicalism. You know, I, I can speak Egyptian. I know what kind of food they like. And I know still know how to make bricks. Uh, but but guess what? I'm not there anymore. <laughs> I'm in the yeah. desert. I'm camping. It's hot. It's cold. There's not enough food. We're grumbling. We're complaining. But it's worth it to be free. Hmm. I was going to say, so I think part of my question about like, what do we keep from Christianity? What do we throw away? Do we even use that uh, that title anymore comes from this deep tiredness that I have and this deep longing to arrive. Right. Like I always think that if I was an Israelite, I would have been right in Noah's face. Like you're giving me this manna. You ain't got no Frank's red hot. You don't got no ranch dressing. I'm tired. Like we need to just go back to Egypt because at least I know that they have some Swedish fish back there. Right. Like I get tired. Right. So I'm wondering your attitude is so like positive and just like. Um, like you, you have hope for the future. And I, to an extent, I feel like my hope is diminishing. So I'm wondering, how do you keep that? Why are you smiling at Andrew? I'm smiling at you because like, this could have all been like a secret therapy session that we set up for Beth. Because I've been waiting for her to ask you that we question, Jamar. Because I, I have been, I, I, you know, in a big way, I feel like my role on this team is to make sure that Beth doesn't get exhausted. Mm, yeah. uh, because like, I, I find white people exhausting, and I'm not black. <laughs> so I can only imagine what Bethany Stewart... I find Stewart, white people exhausting, and I'm white. I can only imagine what Bethany Stewart, I, right. who I joke is the black pope of Circle of Hope. My, my, my. I like that. But yeah. it's that... So that comes from 
this place where Mm -hmm. white people expect labor from black people, particularly Mm -hmm. black women. And I always catch myself. I've been listening to Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've written that book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, <laughs> how do you keep this energy, right? Like, what is your sustainability? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll say for certain that, um, you know, never judge anyone's well-being by their sort of social media presence or public presence, right? Um, oh, we're all going not. through things. Um, and I go through seasons for sure uh, when it's exhausting. But mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I feel like... I feel like we're in good company when we're on this journey, right? Like, Mm. um, so Jesus talks about the broad and the narrow path. And the broad path for us with, like, racial conditions today would be to remain in these white evangelical spaces that, yeah, maybe they give sort of lip service to equality and whatnot, but it's really Blue Lives Matter. It's really, what about abortion? So, therefore, I can only vote one way, right? Um, And we could sort of keep our head down and and stay in those places. But so many of us have chosen a different path, a narrow path, a a rocky path that's difficult. But then I remember, I mean, we got to go back. We got to let Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount sink into our souls, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted because Mm. of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, And Jesus keeps going. Blessed are you when people insult you when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Like, what? I think that's a, those are, those are, those are scriptures that actually don't become real for us unless we're actually being persecuted for righteousness sake, Mm -hmm. which, which I would say all the opposition, all the trolling, all the labeling, all the libeling that we're facing because Mm -hmm. we simply say black lives matter and want to do something Mm -hmm. about it. I'd say that's be you know a form of uh, being called out and insulted and uh, people falsely saying stuff about us uh, because of Jesus, right? And so what keeps me going is that blessedness that Jesus talks about. So so the way Jesus blesses me on this journey is by sending me a community, new friends, right? Like the team at the witness is not just they're not just colleagues in a sense; they're my extended church family. Uh, mm-hmm. We have group text messages, and we laugh together, and we lament together, and all that stuff. Um, it's remembering the Sabbath. It's so interesting. That's one of the commandments, and yet we, we we pay so little attention to it. But reminding myself, and I'm terrible at this. I have mad struggles with workaholism. But reminding ourselves that um, it's not all on us to mm. fix it. And so guess what? Lay your burdens down. The best definition I heard of Sabbath came from a pastor. I don't even remember who it was, but he said, um, a Sabbath rest means resting from whatever causes you worry or anxiety. And to me, that was huge because it was more than just not working, right? It was, it was, it was even our thoughts and what's on our spirit, mm-hmm. right? And giving, taking a rest from that. That's been helpful. Um, so yeah, I could say a lot more about self-care and whatnot, but to me, it boils down to this blessing that we don't even understand until we experience some sort of, uh, you could say, persecution for righteousness sake. I I feel like for me, that's that's like the Sabbath needs to like be from social media sometimes. And you're a public figure. I'm like, how do you 
like, do you take a break? How do you deal with the trolls and, and, and um, care for yourself in that sphere? Yeah, the block button is your friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's getting easier and easier now to know immediately who the trolls are and just block away. A lot of times I don't read the comments, which I really don't like because there are plenty of people who are sort of good natured and, and want to have a constructive dialogue that, you know, I just never see their comments because of the risk of running into trolls. And I can't take that. Like to me, it's like a, it's like a sucker punch, right? Like you're on there, you're scrolling through, you're seeing the, the, you're waiting for the next, the new trailer for the movie Dune to come out or whatever. And then you happen <laughs> upon somebody who just hates you. And they don't even know you. And their whole ministry is to follow people they disagree with and then point out how they disagree. Yes, you had a whole episode on this on uh, Pass the Mic. I'm just like, get a life. This is not yeah. what Jesus put you on earth for. Uh, mm -hmm. So it is exhausting. When the book came out, The Color of Compromise, we had a whole social media plan to where I literally, I gave other people my password and they scanned through and proactively sort of filtered some stuff whenever a review came out they read it first and were able to say this is you know mean-spirited or not it's going to be the same i think i think with this next book how to fight racism it's going to be even worse and so yeah. um those you got to proactively put in safeguards and it takes a community mm -hmm. and definitely take breaks absolutely the, the social media i won't say it's not the real world it's just a very small part of the real world Hmm. Right on. Yeah. So we want to wrap this up soon uh, and move into our last segment, which is what you're into this week. But uh, before we do, Jamar, you do have a new book coming out, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. You want to you want to tell us what we can look forward to? Thank you. Thank you for teeing that up. Checks in the mail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as we record this, I just this week turned in final page proof. So the actual drafting and writing is done. And now it just uh, it's going to presses and um, getting endorsements and things like that. But it's really a great follow up to the color of compromise. You need not have read color of compromise necessarily. Uh, you can pick this up on its own. But what Color of Compromise does is um, outlines the problem, talks about how we got to where we are in terms of race, our nation, the church. Uh, it's like going to the doctor and she doesn't take your vitals, doesn't ask you any questions, just says, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. It's like, but wait a minute, <laughs> you don't even know what's wrong. How, how are you prescribing a solution? And so... Um, Color of Compromise was diagnosing the problem. And then how to fight racism as a follow-up is sort of here are some next steps. Here's what we can do about it. Because wherever I go, whoever I'm talking to could be college students, church members, conferences. The most frequent question I get is what do we do? How do we fight racism? How do we be part of the solution? So this is a book-length response to that. Uh, because as I looked at the literature again, you know, it every book about race is going to have some suggestions, right? But few books are entirely devoted to those suggestions. It's usually at the back of a chapter, back of the book, right? One section. This entire book prioritizes the practical, and it's based on a model I introduced in The Color of Compromise called The Arc of Racial Justice. So the book is structured around each of these pieces, awareness, relationships, commitment. And I'm really excited to see how people receive this because I think we need a holistic approach to racial justice. Uh, 
I think a lot of what we see being promulgated now is good stuff, but it majors in, in sort of one particular area, area uh, raising awareness and building knowledge about racism. That's great relational and and reconciliation kind of stuff through friendships and and people that's great um activism sort of getting involved in policy change and all that that's great but we need all of them <laughs> and we need all of them sort of working in concert and so there's three chapters each on each of those sections sort of an upward inward outward model uh of of what we do in each of those areas and um it's full of practical steps from how white and black people might commemorate Juneteenth differently to immigration reform, to um, going through your own racial autobiography and writing down uh, your story, your personal story of race. So it comes out January 5th, 2021. It's available for pre-order now. And uh, I hope it's the next step on uh, this journey in what I would call um, our generation's modern day civil rights movement. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you talk about pre-ordering, how important that is for um, for book sales in general. So just um, I'm putting a plug in for that, like pre-order your book now. Thank you. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing we like to do is talk about whatever we're into this week. It could be meaningful. It could be silly. It could be whatever. Uh, Beth, you want to kick us off? Sure. I can't remember if I said this in the last episode. Uh, Andrew, you've been doing editing. Have I shouted out pumpkin spice lattes yet? Oh, Lord. <laughs> don't remember. You, it's you can an do it annual again. obsession. Go ahead. Really? I love okay. pumpkin spice oh, lattes. Um, and I had my first Starbucks one, which is the most celebratory pumpkin spice latte. But um, if I mentioned that before, I'm also really into, and I said this earlier, um, Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here. Um, It's a really great book that talks about her experience um, in her black and female body and what it has been like to be in spaces um, with white folks. But beyond just white folks, I didn't realize that the book was so faith centered, right? Like most of her work um, is in like... uh, church organizations and nonprofits and such. Um, So it's been a book that has been um, shockingly relevant for Mm -hmm. me. Like it really, I really feel like I could have written that book. Like if her name wasn't on it, it's just such a mirror experience of Mm -hmm. my life growing up in this black body in predominantly white spaces. So that's been really, really, really great for me. Awesome. That the white spaces is where I learned about pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> hey, it's I not all imagine. bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll I'll say this real quick to Bethany. Uh, have you heard of Shaniqua Walker Barnes? I haven't yet. Oh, you're gonna love her book. I bring the voices of my people. She analyzes racial reconciliation from a womanist perspective, and has fantastic things to say about gender dynamics in the whole sort of evangelical racial reconciliation movement. I'm writing her name down in my notes yeah, right cool. now. Awesome. Uh, Chris, you want to go next? Sure. Um, so on a, on a light note, I, um, I've been enjoying the work of um, Amber Share on Instagram, um, who runs this account called Subpar Parks. And this account <laughs> feels like so 2020 to me. Um, she takes Yelp reviews 
of national parks, like one-star Yelp reviews, things like, I'm, I'm looking at, the very first one is for Pacific Rim National Park, and so she like turns it into a graphic, like a like like a tourism graphic, but with the with the review in it. So this this um this picture is um of a scene at Pacific Rim National Park, and and the words are if you like walking on an almost an if you like walking on an almost endless beach, this is the place. It's okay. It's like it's it's like feeding part of me that like misses traveling, but also is like informed by the cynicism of this year. Um, it's that a great phenomenal. <laughs> what was the name again? It's called Subpar Parks on gotcha. Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> let's check that out. I am into um, I I am into my comrades in the Up Against the Law Legal Collective once again because last night they were up all night at the JDT homeless encampment on Ben Franklin Parkway, watching for police misconduct in the rain. In the with rain. flashlights, I'm oh. just I am I am I am always floored to, that I uh, that I am allowed to associate with these amazing activists who look out for each other and uh, are supporting the encampment right now, uh, which has already which is highlighting the problem of homelessness in the city and are already like gotten concessions from the city and hmm. the fight continues. But uh, up against the law, dudes, you guys are great. Um, I'm forever privileged to be working with you. Um, so that's what I'm into. Yeah. Uh, Jamar, what are you into this week? <laughs> that was deep. That was, that was heavy. That was like eternal, <laughs> you know, echoes right there. Mine is not nearly so profound, but I can say this goes back to a question we talked about and it's sort of like self care and what gives you hope. So we got a new kitten, but it's not just any kitten. This is a Savannah cat, which I had never heard of before, like two months ago, but it is a sort of, sort of an exotic pet. It is a cross between a domestic house cat and um, an African serval, S-E-R-V-A-L, which is a medium-sized, hmm. thin cat on the African savannas. And uh, my wife told me about them, and they're they're sort of like dog cats in the sense that they're a little bit bigger than a domestic cat. They're very smart. Uh, they tend to be very personable. You can take them for walks. You can train them a little what? bit. And wow. uh, so there's these waiting lists, like they have to be um, raised by these special breeders. So we just got our Savannah cat two weeks ago, and she is a huge ball of fun. She is so... Oh, they're pretty too. They are so pretty. They have these like wild exotic coats. Um, and yeah. uh, and so, yeah, she's, she's, she has brought us a spark of joy in the midst of this pandemic. And we, we are Whoa. happy for this feline family addition. Um, be sure you share a picture of the the cat sometime. True enough. I need to get that on my Instagram. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cat guy, yes. which a lot of people yeah. try to make fun of, but I'm like, nah, man, cats are independent. Not in this crowd. They're hunters, man. It's it's yeah. <laughs> I can leave my house for a few days and I don't have to worry about them. Exactly. I love that part. Yes. Yeah. Love it. All right. Um well, special thanks to uh, Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager, and to Jared Selby, who does our theme song. Uh, Jamar, thank you so much for being here yeah, with you. us today. Oh, my goodness. Today. Fun, this was honest great. conversation. Thank you. It was my yeah, pr- pleasure. We, we, yeah. This is a real, a real blessing to use Christianese. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jamar's book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, comes out on January 5th, 2021. 
you can find him on Twitter at, at Jamar Tisby. Um, oh, it's my part. I'm so excited that Jamar's here. I forgot about my closing. <laughs> so with that, thank you, Jamar, and stay black, Little Mermaid. Nice. Oh, I love that.